Good morning, church. In describing this, uh, in, in working through this series as we begin this new year, Pastor Greg and I have been struggling to find a way to describe it, a way to entitle it. And uh, a way to a way to put in a in a short phrase some sort of title that makes sense as we talk about the character of God. It's so much bigger than any phrase. And so what we've decided to do is talk about seeing the character of God, being the character of God, and and sharing the character of God. And so um, this morning, it's in this second discussion of the character of God as the theme of Scripture, that uh, we're going to talk about seeing it. Last week I talked to you about as you start out your new year, many of us start fresh beginning in Genesis or beginning to read through the Scriptures in the new year. As you start out your new year and your new, your new development discovery in Scripture, I'm going to invite you to look within the pages for the character of God to come off the page. Remember, the issue in the scripture is the, is the question about the character of God. The Bible is starting out with a story. After the creation story, after God sets everything perfectly, the story begins about the character of God question and where it came from. Adam and Eve are standing before Eve, is standing before a tree, talking to the snake. And the snake says, ah, God's not really telling you the truth, Eve. He's lying to you about this whole deal. You're not actually going to die. He's holding out on you. He knows the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And he's holding that back. Just go ahead, try it. You'll like it. And she does. And thus begins the insertion of that question into our hearts and our minds. We ask the same question all the time. You ask it when something doesn't go right in your life. You ask, well, why, God? Why didn't this happen the way I had hoped it would be? You have this grand plan for things, and it doesn't work out as you expected. And you ask, well, why, God? Why didn't this happen as I had planned for it? I prayed about it before I planned. I asked you. I thought we were on the same page. Why isn't this working out as I had thought it would? When your prayers aren't answered in the way you want them answered. We put out our prayers and uh, we know that there are three possible answers, right? We know that there is yes. We know that there is no. And we know that there is wait. But we only really want one of those answers to be the one given to us, correct? We put out our prayers with full expectancy of a yes. Yes, this is what I'm going to have. Because I prayed, I asked God, and it happens. It always happens. Well, it doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't happen, we have the same question. It's a question about whether God can be trusted. And at the core of that question about trusting God is a question about the character of God. Satan claims certain things about the character of God, and God could not just spout out an answer saying, no, it's not true, no, it's not true, no, it's not true. I don't lie. He had to demonstrate that it was true. And throughout the scripture, the stories that are being told are, are demonstrations of how a person interacts with God and how that trust pours itself out. Today, I'm just going to pick out one of those stories. It's, it's into the book of Judges, a book we don't often enter into. This is one of the stories we talk, to, we talk about in Judges regularly. There are a lot of stories in Judges we never even read. Be honest, we kind of read through Judges and go, man, what was going on with these people? I want you, the next time you read through any of these books, to insert a little piece, insert a little piece of thought that I just was thinking about this week. We always read these highlight moments. Israel starts to fade away from their relationship with God. They start doing all these bad things, and the Midianites come in this case. Or the Philistines come later, or whoever, the Babylonians, whoever it is. You know what we don't do? We don't think about how long it was that Israel was faithful between stories. At least I don't. Have you ever done that? Have you ever stopped and thought, wow, they were faithful for 200 years before they went off the rails here. Or they were faithful for an entire generation before they did this. We never stop to think about how long they were faithful in between. And I want to encourage you to start looking for that. Stop and say, okay, oh, look, right before here, there's this whole generation of people who remained faithful. And then when that particular king or that particular prophet passed away, then they started getting off the rails and they started going on into other things and got themselves into trouble. 
Today, as we start the story of Gideon, and I want you to remember that Israel has been faithful for a long time. And now here we are at the beginning of this story as Israel has gone off the rails and they've begun to worship Baal. They're worshiping Baal, worshiping Baal and Asherah. These are the local gods for the neighborhood. These are the Canaanite gods. They're the ones that everybody worships in, in those neighborhoods. It's what the culture does. And they're just really becoming assimilated into their culture. And the worship of Baal includes uh, some fertility rites, which I'll leave for you to figure out for yourself. But the idea behind these fertility rites is that Baal brings rain. And he makes it rain. And if he makes it rain, then everything works out for you. Mostly in agrarian society, without rain, things are in really, really bad shape. And so they pray to this God of rain. And they try to make the rain happen. They try to manipulate the heavens and make the rains fall. And as we open the book of of, uh, Judges in chapter 6... We get sort of a setting, a description of what's going on. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. I want you to stop and and think about what it means for the Israelites to have gone gone and done evil in the Lord's sight in this discussion. Who brings the rain? Does God actually bring the rain? How often does God interfere and bring rain, biblically, that you've read? handful of times, right? It's really, it's really not. You don't pray to the heavens and it starts to rain very often in the Bible, correct? So how does the rain happen? God set up a cycle. He created the earth so that on a regular basis, there would be a cycle of rain. There would be a rainy season and a dry season. And he created this process. Now, occasionally he steps into that process and interferes with it and brings rain or stops rain, right? Three and a half years, no rain or a giant rain at the end when they pray. This, this, this process is, though, set up by God in his creatorship at the beginning of the whole story. God created the world, and he said there will be rain, and it will fall, and this is going to be the story, and this is how it's going to work, after the flood, of course. But in this particular case, Israel is giving all credit for rain and fertility to Baal and Asherah. Okay? Okay? Asherah is a little bit more gruesome than Baal. With Baal, it's fertility rites you practice in the temple. With Asherah, to make her happy, there has to be blood. And eventually, they end up actually sacrificing family, sacrificing children to Asherah. Because if you kill your kid, then you can get more kids. Makes great sense, doesn't it? Didn't you all just go, oh yeah, that's obvious. But somehow that became the understanding of the, of the culture and the understanding of the Israelite people. And they begin to follow Baal and Asherah and they begin to do these things that are appalling. They're appalling when you think about them. They're appalling to God. And so when you, when you think Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight so that the Lord handed them over to the Midianites, Midianites, I want you to think about what the evil was that they were doing. I want you to understand that they were practicing these fertility rites and they were practicing some pretty horrible things in, in worship of Asherah to try to bring fertility to the land and to their families. Okay? They were in their hands for seven, seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They're so cruel that the Israelites are sneaking off into the mountain to try to hide from them. The Midianites share a border with Gideon's family and with the, with the tribe of Manasseh. And so they're interacting with them fairly regularly. And they apparently are watching Israel. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. So if they're, if they're sharing a border near the Jordan River, where's Gaza from there? It's all the way across this, the, the nation of Israel. It's all the way to the coast. It covers all the way to the other side of the, of the, the country. So they're truly destroying everything in the country. They're destroying everything in their path all the way across the country. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep and the goat and the cattle and the donkeys. So it's an interesting way the Midianites are going about their business. They're not just coming in, killing people and taking slaves, which seems to be what most of the time is taking place in these, these battles. It's a battle over land. It's a battle over territory. Or it's a battle over some, some, uh, some frustration or some anger. In this case... There's a, there's a, a terrorizing of the people going on. Take their food, destroy their crops, take their animals, leave them impoverished, leave them unable to take care of themselves. The Midianites are going through a systematic 
sort of burying of the Israelites. They're making them an impoverished people. They're making them starve. They're destroying their livelihood and they're destroying their lives. When they cried out to the Lord. Now, how long have they been in the hands of the Midianites by this point? Seven years. This is part of these things I don't understand. Why does it take seven years of the Midianites coming and messing your world up like this before you start to pray? Because you have another God. Who are you praying to? Baal and Asherah. You're asking Baal and Asherah to take care of you. And you're you're going back to them and saying, hey, I don't know what we did wrong last time, but let's do it better this time. Come on. Can you get in here and stop these guys from coming and messing up our world? They're destroying everything. They're messing up everything. Can you stop them? And they keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. They keep trying. I read through Isaiah uh, 43 and 44 this week. The prophet is saying, you guys go out into the woods. You cut down a tree, an oak or a, a spruce, and you bring it in. And half of it, you put in the fireplace or you cook your food over it and you get your meal from that, that thing and you make your bread over the coals of that half of the tree. And then the other half you carve it and you, you carefully design it and you, he talks about all the various craftsmen who are involved and then you bow down and worship it. Isaiah saying, it's a tree. It's a tree. And that's what's being said about Baal and Asherah. They just don't provide you the help you want. So they finally cry out to the Lord. They finally turn their attention to God himself. And now they ask him. They they speak to him and he sends a prophet. Now you think this was a satisfying answer. God, you, you pray to God and you say, God, the Midianites are messing with our whole life. They're destroying us. And God sends a preacher. You could, I, I, I know, I know. It's not the answer they wanted, was it? Wouldn't be the answer you wanted either. You want Patton. You want George Patton and, the, and a bunch of cannons and a, a bunch of tanks to roll in. That's what you really want for these Midianites. God sends a preacher. The prophet comes along and he said, I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. So is there clarity about what the problem is? Do you think Israel understands what the problem is? Do you think they stop? Nope. But I want you to understand this as a character statement about God. You just got clarity about what's going on with the nation of Israel. There's a national relationship and there's an individual relationship in this story. And I want you to see the first input, the first element of the national relationship of Israel. God's relationship with Israel as a group, as a nation, is different than his relationship with individuals. You've got to keep this straight because if you apply the same rules to both, it messes the whole story up. You can't understand your relationship with God in relationship to the national relationship God has with Israel. Do you see why that would be a problem? Just nod your head if you see, shake your head if you don't. I got five more participants. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll take it. Take what we can get. But you understand that there's two different kinds of relationships. Yes? Okay. So this is about the national relationship with Israel. You as a people have gone after foreign gods. It's not working for you. I told you this was not the way you were supposed to do it. You now are doing it. That's a character. This is what God's heart is thinking. This is about what's motivating God. Do you see that? I want you to make sure you're picking it up because if you stick with national issues and individual relationships, it's going to be cause, cause a lot of confusion. This is a national Israelite issue. Do you think everybody in Israel was unfaithful to God during this time? Surely they weren't. Clearly they weren't. There were some who were still faithful to God in the midst of all kinds of horrible situations. And I think if we could drill down and find that individual, we would find a different experience. They're certainly going to be experiencing some of the struggles that the nation's experiencing, but I bet there are other elements that are not. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath a great tree in Ophrah. Do you think this is where Oprah got her name? All week I've been wondering, is this where Oprah got her name? It is, yeah, you know, it's a little bit of a different spelling. But it's, it's in the neighborhood which belonged to Joas and the clan of Abzus. So think about this for a sec. The introduction to the arrival of the angel, he comes and he sits under a tree. 
The angel of the Lord shows up. He's sitting under a tree. Just as ordinary as an old shoe. What does God do when he shows up? Sits under the tree. It was a nice spot. Shady. Cool. Breezes blowing. Maybe extreme. It's nice. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. I mentioned this to the kids, but you have to get an image of this. A wine press is a hole. Right? You understand that, right? It's, it's a hole because you're pressing the wine. You don't want it to run away. You don't want it to disappear and come, go off somewhere where it's not supposed to be. So you have this catch basin for a wine press. A wine press is catching the wine that's being pressed. He's in the bottom of a hole threshing wheat. Now, do you know how you thresh wheat? If you're not in the bottom of a hole in this period of time, you would be standing up on a flat surface where there was a nice breeze blowing. You don't want too much wind, but you want a pretty good breeze blowing. So usually they're on a hill or a high spot where the wind blows pretty dependably. And you go and you you stick a pitchfork kind of an item into the wheat. You toss it up in the air. And the idea is that all of the chaff blows off on the breeze and you're left with the kernels of wheat. Okay? And so you have to have a breeze to make this work. And you need to have the breeze blowing through and taking the chaff away. Now imagine you're in a hole, threshing wheat. This is what that looks like. Up goes the wheat, down on your head comes the wheat and the chaff. Up goes the wheat, down on your head comes the wheat and the chaff. Up goes the wheat. It's probably a horrible experience. Have you ever had chaff on your body? It's itchy. It's uncomfortable. If you don't have an allergy to it, it's probably still going to have you sneezing like crazy. He's in a hole doing what a hole is not designed to do. Okay? He's in a hole, probably covered with wheat, covered with chaff, trying to do a nearly impossible thing. Why? Fear. Fear. He's hiding from the Midianites, lest they see he have food, come, beat him up, and take his stuff. When I was a kid, there was a kid down the street, a little older than me. I was going to name him, but who knows? He might pick this up on the radio someday. He was a bully. He was a punk. And he used to pick on all the kids in our neighborhood. In order to go to the store, when you were sent by your mother to the store, most of us crossed the elementary school. Okay? Our elementary school had, a, had gates on both sides that were never locked. And you would go in through the gate nearest our house. You would cross the elementary school grounds and out through a gate on the other side. He used to like to lurk by the gate on the other side where there was just an open field and not many houses around. He'd like to lurk there for kids who were on their way to the grocery store. And he would ask you, when you came through that little gate, where are you going? Oh, nowhere, I'm just going. I have a friend who lives over there. I'm just going to his house. I'm going over there. Are you going to the store? Do you have money? told you he was a punk. At the time, I wished I were taller and bigger. You know, he was, so, he was always bigger than all of us and always stronger than all of us. And it was just nothing you could do about him. You just had to deal with him. Do you have money? No, I don't have money. I'm going to see Mike Hillary. He lives around the corner. He's right over there. I'm going to visit him. Open your pockets. See, I don't have anything. Open your other pocket. It's a bully. The Midianites are bullies. And they're, they're coming and taking everything that belongs to the people. Why is he in this hole doing what's impossible to do in a hole? Because he's afraid. We kids started traveling in packs to go to the grocery store. We started going the long way down the street and up the main road because we didn't want to deal with, I almost said his name, standing at the gate. <laughs> Fear motivates so much of your life, doesn't it? There's so many things that we do or don't do because of fear. Step on a crack. See, you know, break your mother's back. Is that ever really going to happen? How many of you are still skipping cracks as you go down the sidewalk? Changing the pattern of your steps just to make sure you don't break your own mother's back. She may not even be alive anymore and you're still skipping cracks on the sidewalk. 
It's, it's as weird as, as something like that and as big as your fear of going out and meeting a, a stranger, going out into public, walking out of your house at night, getting on the freeway. I mean, it, there are so many things that fear cripples. The fear of intimate relationship and talking to someone and letting somebody see inside your heart keeps you from fellowship, keeps you from connection. We are so overwhelmed by fear so much of the time that we are stuck. Here's a guy sitting in a hole trying to thresh grain. Why? Because he's afraid. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and this is what he says. Now, now that you know he's afraid, he's in a hole because he's afraid, and the Midianites are around, and he's like threshing wheat and looking around, threshing the wheat and looking around, threshing the wheat and looking around. Sneeze, sneeze, cough, cough, thresh some wheat, look around. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Mighty hero! The Lord is with you! And Gideon's like, yeah, right. Sure he is. Gideon is frightened and the Lord is calling him what? Mighty hero! You're a mighty hero. God is with you, Gideon. Mighty hero. That's right. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Character question? If God is for us, if God is caring about us, if God is with us, why is all this horrible stuff happening to us? And where, where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? You have asked this question, haven't you? I've asked this question. You have looked up at heaven and you've said, where are the miracles? Come on. The Bible is full of stories where you answer prayers. What's up with this? Why are we not getting the answer we need right here? Why is this happening to my kid? Why is this happening to my family? Why is this happening to my church? Why is this happening to my country? Why is this happening to my world? Why is this happening to me? If you're really with us, if you're really on our side, where are all the miracles that our ancestors talked about? This is the key. Remember, the Bible story is about the character of God from beginning to end. This is who God says he is. He's the creator of all and he loves everybody. and He's trying to do all this wonderful stuff. Here is who Satan says he is. He says he's a liar and a malcontent and he's holding out on you and he doesn't want to bless you and he doesn't want to care for you. And the whole Bible, the whole Bible is stories about how this thing works itself out. Nationally and individually, how does God work with a nation who's with him and against him and with him and against him and with him and against him? How does he deal with that? How does he work with people whose hearts are always like this, up and down and in and out? We can't stay on the path for, uh, to save our souls, literally. How does he deal with us? How does he deal with us when we stray? How does he deal with us when we're on the path? Is it different? How does it look? What does it feel like? Gideon says, here I am, I'm in a hole, I'm threshing wheat. This is a good day for me, God. You show up today and you tell me, hey, mighty hero, God is with you. Yeah, really, God? You ever get that tone with God? You ever take that tone, yeah, really, God? You're here, you're with us, you're taking care of us, you're blessing us? Where are the miracles our ancestors told us about? Now, you heard the first, you heard the introduction to chapter 6, so you kind of know what the problem is. Gideon's living it. Sometimes if you were to really stop and look at the life, yours, the ones that are around you, whatever whatever that is causing the problem, sometimes you could stop, step back, and logically sort it out pretty easily. And it's not a bad practice. It's not a bad practice for us to look at life when things get really ugly, step back, try to get out of the malaise and see it, to see it from a, 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 a little bit better perspective and sort of ask, well, how did this really happen? Sometimes it's as simple as an answer as we live in the armpit of the universe and there's no escaping death here. As hard as it is for us to face that week after week, day after day, it's still true. It's something God's trying to change, something God plans to change, something God will change. 
But while we live here, while sin still reigns, we still deal with it. If we could back up sometimes and hear the first introductory passages and say, okay, I get it, I get it. For seven years we've been wandering off in the wilderness away from you. Why would we expect that as a nation? The Lord turned to him and said, Do you ever watch these and just kind of snicker? Where are all the miracles? God says, Go with strength. Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I'm sending you. What? The strength I have? I'm in a hole with wheat here, God. I'm in a hole trying to, trying to get the chaff out of the wheat so I can have enough to feed my family, God. This is not an abundant moment for me, God. I'm covered in chaff. I'm itchy from head to toe. I've been sneezing for hours. Come on. You're sending me in my strength? What strength? Do you see that this is all about the question, a question of God's character? Do you see this is all about who God is in the life of mankind? But Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. This reminds you of anybody? Could you bring me your sons? No, it's not that one. 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 These are some big, strapping, handsome kids you got. Do you have any more kids? I got one. He's out in the field. But he's the baby. Bring him. That's the one, Samuel. That's the one. You know, maybe the best place to be when God needs a hero is in the smallest tribe in the weakest family, and the littlest kid. You know, because that seems to be the one God's looking for. He seems to be looking for the weakest family in the smallest tribe and the youngest kid. That seems to be who he's looking for all the time. The Lord said to him, You're not doing this in your own strength. I am planning on being with you. You see, this is, never, this is never going to be about you, Gideon. It's always going to be about me. And because you're from the smallest tribe and the weakest family and you're the youngest kid, you will understand that it's not about you. You will understand and you will be able to let Israel understand that it's not in their power and not in their strength, but by the Spirit of God. That is not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. You will be able to, to explain to them that you're the little kid in town. You're not, you're not the strong man. You're hiding in a hole trying to get the chaff out of the wheat. When I came and got you, I said, I'll go with you. Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me. Now, are you getting that Gideon isn't really buying this story yet? Do you like that about Gideon? It's one of my favorite parts about this story. Gideon is constantly going back to God and going, wait a second. And you notice how many ifs there are with Gideon? If you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. And I love this. Do not go away until I come back and bring, more, bring my offering to you. Do you know what his offering is about to be? Have you read ahead in the story? The first question is, are you truly going to help me? If you're going to help me, wait here. If you're really going to help me, wait here. Are you truly going to help me? So he answered, I will stay here until you return. And Gideon hurried home, and he cooked a young goat. No microwave. I, w- I looked on the Internet. This is actually a lot, lot faster than I thought. The fastest, according to the Internet, that you can cook a small goat on a spit over a fire, because I'm pretty sure he didn't put it in the range, Okay. On a spit over a fire, they say about the fastest you can cook a goat, and I'm pretty sure this is medium rare, on a spit is two hours. 
So here's what Gideon says to God. Can you wait here for a couple hours till I get back with a goat? And God says, I'll do that for you. God understands that you are dust. He understands your limitations. He understands that you're not, gonna, you're not coming back with a goat in 10 minutes. He understands that you have an expectation of what you might do. And he's okay with that. And he's okay with living with your limitations. He's okay with living with what you're bringing to the table. He's okay with taking what you bring to the table and elevating it. I just want you to feel comfortable in that. Smallest family, weakest kid. Goes after a goat. It's going to take at least a couple of hours and probably longer because this goat was probably alive when he found it. You got to understand that takes a little time too. Dispatch the goat, clean the goat, skin the goat, put the goat on the spit, spin the goat for two hours. Oh, I forgot building the fire. Make some bread, take the whole thing back where God has now put a hammock in the tree. He's saying, you really ought to get one of these. He's had a nap. He's created a couple planets. He's been back and forth to heaven four or five times. The angels have come for a conflab. He's solved some problems on the other side of the planet. And here comes Gideon. Goat, basket, bread, broth. He brings the broth. So I'm wondering, did they catch it there? There was a, On this whole roast him on a spit, there was a put a pan under the goat, put the fire beside the goat, catch the drippings of the goat. Never cooked a goat like that. I'm trying to remember if I've ever eaten goat. For those of you who are just insulted, I probably will. I wasn't raised in an Adventist family. I've eaten pretty much everything, but I don't think I've ever eaten goat. I might try it. It's clean according to the Bible. The angel of the Lord stays there and waits for the goat to get back. When Gideon realized, well, I forgot the part of the story. Wait, I've got to go back. So Gideon shows up with his goat. And the angel of the Lord is sitting there under the tree. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do with the goat. Put the goat on this rock. Put the bread on the rock. He made unleavened bread. Pour the broth over the goat and over the bread. And then he takes his staff. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think God travels with a staff? I don't mean people. I mean a stick. Do you think God travels with a stick? So why did he show up with Gideon? With a stick. Because everybody had a stick. And he was trying to fit in. (laughs) Not trying to fit in like insecure human beings. Trying to fit in so that insecure human beings wouldn't go running over the hillside when they saw him. You realize God always appears in a manner that makes us comfortable. So he shows up with his staff. And after all this offering is poured out on this rock, the Bible says he touched it with his staff and fire came out of the rock and consumed the offering. Does that sound cool to you at all? Sounds phenomenal to me. What, did we have a small volcano? Did we just have a, a light show? Did we have electricity? Did we have blue flame, purple flame, red flame, yellow flame? What came out of the rock? Don't you ever have any questions about this stuff? I always have questions about this stuff. Fire comes out of the rock and consumes all the stuff that's on the rock. Now Gideon realizes that he's talking to the angel of the Lord. Why didn't he realize this before? Easy. It had been a bad day. He's not seeing everything clearly. Ever going home after a bad day and not really see too clearly? Go home after a bad day, look, in your wi- look at your wife and say, Hi! Go home after a bad day, walk right by your husband, not notice anything. Oh, I didn't see you there. I was breathing on you. 
You know, the, the, your husband leans over. I'm going to do, do this to you, Kathy. Your husband leans over, and you just go by. Okay. Been a bad day, huh? Sometimes when your life is so caught up in your fears and your struggles and whatever you're dealing with at the moment, God comes to speak to you and you don't know it's him. You don't recognize what's going on. You don't in your heart understand who you're dealing with. You're not approachable because you're so caught up in all the things that are killing you, all the struggles you're, you're dealing with that you don't even see that it's God. Now he says... When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord. I love that he finally comes to this. I'm doomed. <laughs> he is not over being afraid yet. Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. This is the, this is the, uh, the New Living Translation. I love that they translated it that way. I'm doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I'm, I'm like the offering. I'm just going to turn into a pile of ashes here any minute. I read about, I read about Nadab and Abihu. I'm cooked. I'm toast. I'm done. Stick a fork in me. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Here's then what God says. I love the character and the heart of God. It's all right, Gideon. Glad you took a shower while you were home. You're good. It's okay. It's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. (laughs) This is a good day. You will not die today. You have stood here talking to me face to face, and yes, you will not die. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. My mercy is new for you this morning. You will not die. My grace is covering you. You will not die. I love you. You will not die. Gideon built an altar to the Lord in that place and named the place Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is my peace. And the text goes on to say, as the writer of the book of Judges, and it's still there today. I wish it was still there today. Somewhere down in the valley near the Jordan River, there was a big tree. And under the tree, there was an altar to the Lord. And every time somebody walked by, they looked at the altar and said, Oh, Gideon built that after the day when he was trying to thresh wheat in the hole. Remember how goofy that must have looked? And after he talked to God and God said, Gideon, you won't die. I know you, faced, you were talking to me face to face, but my mercy is adequate. My grace will cover you. You're not going to die. Gideon built that altar, son, and he said, we're going to call this place Yahweh's peace. Because from his fear, in his encounter with God, he came to peace. That night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull. (laughs) It's another one. Why the second? Why not the third, the first, the fourth, the fifth? Why Why the second? Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that has... That is seven years old. The only question, only thing I have about this is it's been seven years since they've been worshiping Baal. Seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop. Who is in charge of the altar of Baal in this particular village? His dad. Joash, Gideon's father, is in charge of the altar to Baal. And he says, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go home. You're going to cut down the altar. You're going to take down the altar to Baal. You're going to cut down the idol. And you're going to cut down the Asherah pole. You're going to kill your father's bull. And then you're going to make a sacrifice to God on an altar you build in that place. And you're going to use the wood from Baal and the wood from the Asherah pole to cook the, cook the, the, uh, the bull, to burn the bull up. Is Gideon boldly going to go do this now? (laughs) Have you read this story? Gideon's life is pretty well managed by fear. The Bible says the next thing Gideon does that night, goes up there and does exactly what God says under the cover of darkness. Because he's afraid of his dad and he's afraid of the people in the village and what they might do if they find him tearing down the altar. 
and tearing down Baal. Do you see that you don't have to be some great, courageous, Moses-like figure to be used by God? You don't have to have all your stuff together and be courageous and strong. I love the beginning of the, of the, uh, the story of Joshua where the people keep saying to him and God keeps saying to him and Moses keeps saying to him, just be courageous, just have courage, just be courageous. He's scared too. He goes in by night. He tears down the, these, these uh, idols. He builds an altar to God. He puts his father's Bull, number two, seven-year-old bull, on the altar, builds this big fire, and the people all wake up the next morning, and their, their idols are gone, and there's an altar on the hilltop where they used to worship Baal, and there's a bull still burning on the altar. And they're not happy. And they start running around the village saying, who did this, who did this, who did this? And somebody says, hey, oh, well, <laughs> I, I, you can't say I told you, but it was Gideon. They go to Gideon's father, Joash, and they say to Joash, look, your kid did this. He destroyed the altar to Baal. He cut Baal in pieces and used him as firewood. And he cut the Asherah pole down. You know we don't want to get her mad at us. And he sacrificed a bull to an, on an altar to God. And they recognized that this was an altar to God. Got to love Joash's father's answer. See, look, if Baal's a god... Let Baal deal with this. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon is called Jerubbaal, which means let Baal defend himself. Because he broke down Baal's altar. And you know what the rest of the sentence is? And Baal did nothing about it. Because if Baal's a real god, he's kind of scared of Gideon. Who everybody knows is scared of everything. Do you see the turnaround that happens? Do you understand that God takes you where you are? That it is in the heart and the character of God to deal with our questions? God isn't angry at him for having questions. He's not frustrated with him for being afraid. He doesn't take him aside and slap him around a little bit. He just simply, he simply steps into his life, takes him where he is, and walks with him where he is, deals with him where he is. Some of us are frightened all the time, and some of us know exactly what he's feeling. Some of us have been in that wine press trying to thresh the, the wheat just because we don't want somebody to know we have something. Some of us have six locks on our doors because we walk in the house and we lock it and we lock and we lock and we lock and we lock just in case. And we have 14 locks on our computer. And we have all kinds of people out there trying to protect us. And we're still afraid. And every night we go to bed, we're a little bit worried. And every night we say to God, God, I'm still afraid. I'm still afraid. I'm still afraid. And it's the character of God to say, I understand. I'm with you. And when I'm with you, great exploits can be done by those who are afraid. God knows that some of us are more bold than we should be. God knows that some of us speak beyond our ability. Some of us let our mouth write checks that our, our bodies can't answer. Some of us do all kinds of stupid things because we don't think. We don't have quite enough of a dose of reality and fear. And we just go boldly off running into things and causing problems for others and for ourselves, maybe even for our families. And God looks at us and he says, wait, slow down, stop. Okay, here we go. And he steps into our life in the messes that we make. And he walks alongside of us. Some of us have been through multiple marriages. And if we really looked at ourselves honestly in the mirror, we would know that most of it's on us. We keep blowing it on the same way, in the same path. We keep doing the same stupid stuff. 
And we're dealing with that. And God is saying to us, I know you really messed this up and you keep messing it up. And I'm telling you, I hate divorce. You know why I hate it? Because it causes hardship and pain to you and your family and your kids. That's what I don't like. It. People, people misunderstand when God says this. He says, I don't like divorce. In fact, he says, I hate divorce. And people say, oh, that means he hates me. It's not what he said. He didn't say he hated divorced people. I hate the divorced. He said, I hate the process. It's harmful. And his heart goes out to those children and those families and you and your kids, your wife, your husband. I know I'm walking right into your kitchen right now. But I want you to understand that whatever it is, That's the anchor around your personal neck. The mistake that you keep wandering back through. God is aware of it. And he's willing to walk through the trauma that it is causing you with you. And transform your life from this day on. That tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today because God will walk through tomorrow next to you. That's the character of the God who calls himself your father. That's the heart of the God who met Gideon in a wine press, threshing wheat. There's one more element to this story. You, If you are familiar with it, you know that Gideon goes and he defeats the Midianites. And the Bible describes over 100,000 Midianites and Amalekites and people from the east dying. And there's a big question among a lot of people who read the Bible, Christian and non-Christian, believer and non-believer, that says, how, why, what happened there? God, how did 100,000 people or more get killed Because you helped Gideon and 300 men do it. God, how do you account for that kind of behavior? Here you are loving and caring for this scared guy in a wine press. And then you're out there killing off 100,000 Midianites. It doesn't make sense to me, God. Can I separate out the individual and the nation again? Can I separate out that compassionate heart of the God who knew every one of those soldiers who was fighting for Midian? Can I separate out the individual relationship that you've just seen God display in the life of Gideon and the national relationship God has with Israel and the people around her? And can I just admit from the, from the, from the, out, from the outset that I don't really have a great, perfectly thought out, theologically checkmarked answer for you. But it seems to me in Scripture that God often acts on behalf of the nation of Israel in ways that cost other nations great loss. If he allows the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east to continue on the track they're on, taking the food, taking the animals, killing the people, Israel will disappear from the planet. And there's a bigger issue here. There's the issue that these people are the ones whom he's invested the message in and they need to be protected. We talked about the flood a few weeks ago and we talked about the fact that the the message of salvation was down to eight Heartbeats. And God had to protect them. There's a difference between the way he deals with nations and the way he deals with individuals. You know what the crazy part of this story is? You may walk through the gates of heaven. Start getting introduced to people. And find one of the guys in the Midianite army was saved by God. 
Because the way your life ends isn't the determinative factor of where your life ends. The way your life ends is not usually the determinative factor about where you end up. The character of God in this story is revealed in several ways. He is powerful. He's authoritative. He has some lines that he's laid out that are significant enough that we can't cross them. And I stop on the Baal and Asherah issue for just a second again and just remind you. They're giving credit to a rock or a piece of wood for the activities of God. And they've gotten to the point where they're willing to sacrifice their children to make this rock or piece of wood work on their behalf. And God simply says, I can't go along with this anymore. I can't do this. He's compassionate. He's caring. He's long-suffering. And he's in it with Gideon. For Gideon, not for him. And everything that was true of him then is true of him now. Everything that was true of him for that frightened young man out in the plains of the Jordan is true of him now for you and for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so beyond our understanding. Thank you for these little windows into your heart and the activities of the people in the scripture. Thank you that they had the same questions we have. Thank you that you took the time to deal with and process this with them and that you do the same with us. Thank you for taking our hands and walking through the messes that we create to bring us out to the other side. Pray for your leadership. Pray for your blessing. Pray for your spirit to reach deep within our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.